1: terrific work. And you can find out more and give them a call. The website is johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. We have a terrific show for you today, including guest Mark Shulman. He's the founder and publisher of a terrific multimedia website. It's called historycentral.com. We'll also visit with Larry Reed, President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education, and Jim McTagg, former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief and now author of some great murder mysteries. We'll visit with Jim as well. It is May the 22nd and on this day in 1843, the first major wagon train to the Northwest departed from Elm Grove, Missouri on the Oregon Trail. The first overland immigrants to Oregon, intended primarily to farm, came in 1841 when a small band of 70 pioneers left Independence, Missouri. They followed a route blazed by fur traders who took them west along the Platte River through the Rocky Mountains uh, via Easy South Pass in Wyoming and then northwest to the Columbia River. In the years to come, pioneers came to uh, call the route the Oregon Trail In 1842, a slightly larger group of 100 pioneers made the 2,000-mile journey to Oregon. The next year, however, the number skyrocketed to 1,000. The sudden increase was a product of severe depression in the Midwest, combined with a flood of propaganda from fur traders, missionaries, and government officials extolling the virtues of the land. Farmers dissatisfied with their prospects in Ohio, Illinois, Kentucky, and Tennessee hoped to find better lives in the supposed paradise of Oregon. And we lived in Oregon for a couple years. a beautiful, beautiful place. On this day in 1843, some 1,000 men, women, and children climbed aboard their wagons and steered their horses west out to the small town of Elm Grove, Missouri. Uh, the train comprised more than a th- 100 wagons with a herd of 5,000 oxen and cattle trailing behind. Dr. Elijah White, a Presbyterian min- missionary who had made the trip the year before, served as a guide. <clears throat> The first selection of the Oregon Trail ran through the relatively flat country of the Great Plains. Obstacles were few, though the river crosses could be dangerous for the wagons. The danger of Native American attacks was small but genuine. To be on the safe side, the pioneers drew their wagons in a circle at night. It's called circling the wagons to create a makeshift stockade. If they feared Native Americans might raid their livestock, the uh, Plain tribes valued the horses, though generally ignored the oxen. They would drive the animals into an enclosure. Uh, The pioneers quickly learned that they were more likely to be injured or killed by the host of more mundane causes. Obstacles included uh, accidental discharge of uh, firearms, falling off mules or horses, drowning in river crossings and disease. After ending the mountains, uh, the trail also became much more difficult with steep ascents and descents across the rocky terrain. The pioneers risked injury from overturned and runaway wagons. Yet, as with the 1,000-person party that made the journey in 1843, the vast majority of pioneers on the trail survived to reach their destination in the fertile and well-watered land of western Oregon. The migration of 1844 was smaller than the previous season, but in 1845 it jumped to 3,000. Thereafter, migration on the Oregon Trail was an annual event, though the practice of traveling in giant convoys or wagons gave way to smaller bands of one or two dozen wagons. The trail was heavily traveled until 1884 when the Pacific Union constructed a railway along the route. And then it was possible to get across the United States in a lot less time, I'm sure the wagon trail uh, business dried up pretty quickly. And as for the missionaries showing the way, that job probably went away too. It's called creative destruction with uh, new technology and inventions. Let's start off with a good news story. Club uh, go- pro golfer Michael Block Age 46, dunked a stunning hole-in-one in the PGA Championship final round yesterday. It was just really amazing. Hit the ball in the air, and it came down right in the cup. Unbelievable. He sunk his ace on the par-3 15th hole at Oak Hill Country Club in Rochester, New York. The fairy tale story gets better. A hole-in-one, the announcer could be heard saying, as Block nailed the ace shot and the crowd went wild. At first, Block could not believe it himself. But uh, His partner playing partner uh, Roy McElroy, confirmed it. it was uh, true. Did that go in Roy he asked and McElroy shook his head, and said yes, he was a big smile and gave him a big hug. Bach made his way to the hole and the crowd never let up. The cheers were deafening. it could shake the smile off his face. Bach had been a, a fan favorite all week as he became the only tour pro who qualified for the major to make the cut while many struggled at different at a different course. <clears throat> Entering Sunday, Block was in a position to win $500,000, which he gets to cash Uh, being a certified pro. The most uh, he said he'd ever made was $75,000 and added to the event with a hole-in-one. Block tied for 14th in his final round, one of the most memorable and feel-good stories in a major championship. is coming to an end. It was just incredible. And uh, his final shot, I mean, the final hole, was just an incredible performance. And he sank the putt. And so now he's automatically being invited uh, next year to the PGA Championship. Great story. Well, today, President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy are again meeting to try and iron out the debt ceiling negotiations. The pressure is growing as uh, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is saying, the sky is falling. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and she's insisting that June 1st is a deadline and it's a hard one. This weekend, the White House has been a, a stop and go negotiations with Republican congressional leaders. A main point of contention is that Republicans want to cut back on some of federal spending before raising the national borrowing limit. However, Biden and congressional Democrats want to raise the debt ceiling now and worry about cuts later. <laughs> yeah, you can trust them. No worries. Uh, McCarthy said both sides are still apart, but their recent call with Biden was productive. All that comes at the, as the nation is bracing for a possible default. Biden says he's exploring his other options, including uh, invoking the 14th Amendment, which uh, might let him raise the debt ceiling without Congress. The move is expected to, of course, face legal challenges. <clears throat> 14th uh, Amendment basically says you, you have to, the debt will be paid. Uh, however... Uh, Uh, I don't suspect that's going to hold up. Well, President Joe Biden also claimed Sunday that some Republicans are willing to allow the country to go into default on its debt for the first time to prevent him from winning another presidential term. I'm not kidding. He really said that. I think there's some MAGA Republicans in the House who know the damage that would be uh, due to the economy. And because I am president, and presidents are responsible for everything, Biden would take the blame. And that's just the one way to make sure that Biden's not reelected, Biden said in Japan at the G6 summit. However, he argued that if the U.S. defaults, he would not be blamed. So he's saying both things at the same time makes no sense. But nevertheless, he really said this, on the merits, based on what I've offered which is nothing, I would be blameless. The Democrat president said, on the politics of it, no one would be blameless. And uh, by the way, that's one of the one of the things that comes with uh, uh, that with some contemplating. So uh, if you make sense of that, it's just incredible. But never, he said that at the G seven meeting. Governor Ron DeSantis announced the appointment of Melissa Blazier, at, as Collier County Supervisor of Elections. She's worked at the Supervisor of Elections office since 2006. And prior to appointment, she served as Chief Deputy Supervisor of Elections under Jennifer Edwards, who just retired in April. Laser holds a bachelor's degree in business administration, maga cum laude, uh, from Hodges University. She received her designation as Certified Elections Registration Administrator for the National Association of Election Officials and is a Master Florida Certified Elections Professional through the Florida Supervisors of Elections. She's got a pretty impressive resume of community achievements and service. She grew up in Naples and graduated from Naples High School. So uh, Melissa's got the job right now, but it's an elected position. I don't know when the next election is. I think it could coincide with the presidential election, but uh, nevertheless, she's got the job now, and pretty impressive resume. There's some other folks though that are already filed to uh, to run for the office. Governor Ron DeSantis announced that Florida has the lowest unemployment rate among the top 10 largest states in the nation at 2.6% unemployment as Floridians uh, see continued economic stability spurred in part by the thriving tourism industry. Between January and March of 2023, Florida saw a record 37.9 million visitors, uh, the largest volume of visitors ever recorded in a single quarter. In April 2023, Florida's unemployment rate was at 2.6% for the fourth consecutive month, and which is 0.8% lower than the national rate of 3.4%. The statewide unemployment rate has remained lower than the national rate for 30 consecutive months since November 2020. Through strong economic policy and strategic investments, Florida is outperforming the nation and providing more opportunity for its citizens, resulting in more than 200,000 new business formations this year alone, which is impressive, and an unemployment rate near an all-time low, said Governor DeSantis. In Florida, we are combating negative national economic headwinds by promoting policies that support Florida, uh, their businesses, and families and attract record numbers of tourists every day. And by the way, uh, uh, Florida-registered voters are increasing dramatically. Uh, Democrats uh, are—Florida uh, the floor, uh, Florida Republicans exceed Democrats by over 116,000, the data shows. In November, Republicans led uh, Democrats by 350,000. Less than six months later, the number stands at 472,000. 780. That's pretty impressive. Both parties are losing voters, though. So since late uh, 2022, Republicans lost around 18,000. However, they're expanding their lead over the Democrats. Can be attributed to Democrats losing voters as a much more rapid pace. On the same time, uh, over the same time, Florida Democrats lost a massive 134,000 voters, more than 600% faster than Republicans. So a larger portion of the registration loss can uh, occur due to the Department of State clearing out voter rolls. But uh, nevertheless, uh, when all is said and done, the Republicans are leading by a nice margin. It's good to see. Well, not everybody's happy with what's happening in Florida. The NAACP board of directors issued a travel advisory for Florida Saturday claiming Governor DeSantis' policies were undemocratic and hostile to black voters. Florida is openly hostile towards African-Americans, people of color, LGBTQ plus individuals. The advisory reads, before traveling to Florida, please understand that the state of Florida uh, devalues and marginalizes the contributions of and the challenges facing African-Americans and other communities of color. I'm not kidding. They really said that. So uh, the whole idea is stay in New York, of course, where there's a lot of violence and not enough police coverage. Uh, Don't go to Florida where people are feeling safe and doing quite well, thank you. It's just uh, crazy. So now they're uh, pimping, (laughs) race baiting. Uh, The NAACP played such an important role with uh, what happened uh, with race relations in Mississippi and other places. And right now they're playing such a marginalized role in warning people, black people, don't go to Florida. Stupid. Stupid. This segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. The website is johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. Coming up, Mark Schulman, founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. That and more right here on The Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
0: Harden Show, here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
1: I'm Bob Harden, the host of The Bob Harden Show. One of my favorites for breakfast or lunch is Lulabee's Diner, providing great service, fabulous food, and a rockin' good time. at lulabies.com and stop by Lulabies Diner, open from 8am until 2pm, 7 days a week Lulabies Diner, in the Green Tree Shopping Center at the corner of Immokalee and Airport Pulling Roads, stop by Lulabies Diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool rockin' good time
2: He's 41. got this. It says, it says, it I hung
0: up. I had Welcome back to, day day to day the Bob Harton Show. Right. And now here's your host, Bob Harton.
1: Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. We're providing you news and commentary rooted in a commitment to individual liberty, personal responsibility, limited government, and the rule of law. Coming up, we're going to be visiting with Larry Reed. He's the president emeritus of the Foundation uh, for Economic Education. Right now we have with us Mark Shulman. Mark is the founder of a multimedia website. It's called HistoryCentral.com. Great for kids of all ages, including you and I. Again, HistoryCentral.com. Mark, thank you so much for joining us here on the show.
2: Always a pleasure,
1: Bob. Thank you, Mark. So there's a lot going on in the world. Uh, I guess... uh, Yelensky has been uh, global trotting around the globe, uh, visiting different countries. Uh, Let's talk about some of the things that are going on. Let's start with Ukraine.
2: Okay, so in Ukraine itself, it looks like the Russians may have finally uh, got the last part of Bakhmut, the town that they've been trying to capture for nine months. But on the other side of it, the Ukrainians seem to be advancing on the flanks of the city. So if I was a betting man, I believe that they've set a trap for the Russians, that they will have captured Bakhmut, and then be surrounded. But we'll have to see. Because um, literally the, the the Ukrainians have been advancing on the two sides of their Russian lines um, on the flanks. So we'll have to see what, what transpires. In the meantime, we're all waiting for the major Ukrainian counteroffensive. And it was kind of interesting here. Reporters asked president biden at the press conference do you know when it's going to start and where it's going to be and it's like you know like they were going to catch him and, and and he would you know give up a military secret so obviously he didn't and no one knows and that's the key no one should know until the ukrainians launch it obviously yeah probably not until a few days after they launch it where we really know
1: any comments on the significance of uh Zelensky traveling around the globe. He hasn't been in the Ukraine for quite a while now. Some people are suggesting that that sounds suspicious. Perhaps uh, he's... No, just the
2: opposite. It shows that he's... <laughs> it just shows the fact that he's confident that uh, no one's going to, you know, going to take over his rule or anything else like that. He's not oh. worried about a coup or anything else like that. Hmm. He has a popularity rating of over 90% inside Ukraine right now. Hmm. So, no, I don't think it... I think I it's think just the opposite. It shows his... Um, fact he has no fear about it i'm sure he's going to be returning to ukraine the next day or so after he finished with the g7 um but it literally shows the opposite Hmm,
1: okay Um, so let's let's uh, i'm sure
2: russian misinformation has spread across the internet all sorts of stories like that but it's all nonsensical frankly um the russians are really good at spreading this misinformation
1: well, I'm very uh, gullible because I, I uh, pretty much don't trust anybody.
2: <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> no, but, you know, again, the, this whole problem of information age, et cetera, I want Walter Cronkite back so he can just say, okay, he said it, it must be true. Uh, well, and, and so, so, in some cases it
1: wasn't, of course, but at least we all agreed he said it, and that was a starting point for our discussion. So. Right, absolutely. <laughs> so, so let's move to the G7 and what's happened there.
2: Well, G7, a lot of it obviously was what was about the Ukraine and continued support for the Ukraine and additional support promised by different countries and the fact that the G7 is standing behind Ukraine um, as well. Um, so it was relating to China. And um, another part of the issue, of course, was the issue of energy and this, this push and pull in terms of getting away from the use of oil as much as possible, on the other hand, Trying to be free of Russian energy, so there's a lot of discussions relating relating to that, and that's a, a big a, a difficult issue. This past year has been been doing that: how to replace the Russian energy, keeping in mind that everyone has done it relatively well. So, um, but there's that question between um, between you know how to maintain uh, commitments vis-a-vis the environment amongst these countries, and yet how to get away from. Dependence on Russian oil and gas, and that's been a, a challenge for everybody. So,
1: I think. yeah. So, you've uh, focused on energy, which I think is the appropriate uh, focus, but not the Green New Deal or not uh, eliminating carbon dioxide and so forth. It's, I think it's it's really refreshing. If in fact uh, global leaders are focusing on getting energy and getting the price of energy down.
2: Right. There's no question about that. But keep in mind the fact that green energy is now cheaper than carbon energy. It just takes time to build up and, of course, dealing with the issues of, you know, weather and all those sort of things. But generally speaking, right now, the cost of solar energy, building solar plants, and everything else is lower than the cost of coal. So uh, the economy will do its thing over the next 20 years. The question is how fast and what the impact is going to be, but the economy is going to do its thing um, because, after all, you know... um, the sun's energy, if we can catch it, or the energy from water or geothermal and all those things, doesn't. You know, once you build the plants, it doesn't cost any money, really, to gather that energy. So, ultimately, um, what's, you know, what you're referring to is green energy. I mean, it's, it, it's going to be the cheap energy, which is going to make things quite interesting, to say the least. It is, um,
1: indeed. It'll take, that, but, you it'll know, take time. The, uh, all these uh, uh, vehicles... Uh, it takes a lot of a lot of uh, energy to produce them, and, and and money a lot of it is coal energy and that type of thing. So it's kind of a false economy in some ways. <clears throat>
2: uh, not really. It costs money to produce regular vehicles too. I mean, let's be realistic here. Yes, it costs money to produce a Tesla, but it also costs money to to produce a, a standard Dodge Ram with a gasoline engine. Yeah. So <clears throat> that, that, that's that, that's a false false issue also because. It's not really, you know, the the two. There is some rare, you know, rare minerals that cost more money in terms of the battery and things of that nature. But, yeah. um, but by and large, they cost the same energy to produce a uh, conventional car as it does to to produce an electric car. Yeah. And there's an interesting, actually, um, there's interesting work that's being done actually here in Israel, uh, where electri- putting elect- electrifying the roads. And so the cars can, get, uh, under the road, there's a low-level energy, wow. uh, electric current, and people can literally um, recharge as they're driving. Wow! And um, that's they just they just set a world's record of hundred straight hours of driving without uh, without upping the batteries, so to speak, using a, going around a course like that. Is there a cost to the consumer?
1: Is there a cost to the consumer?
2: Well, obviously, the, the in order to make this thing work, consumers will have to be charged something. Obviously, for charging, like say we have to be charged, you know, you get charged when you connect up your car to a, a charging station. Right. So it's going to be complicated to figure out the economics of it, but I'm sure the consumer will be charged. It won't be for free, yeah. um, but it'll still be less than gas. That's so That'll fascinating,
1: be- Mark. Uh, uh, is this yeah. developing in other parts of the world? Yes,
2: the they are I mean, cause development originally was done in Israel. Um, a lot of testing was done, but it's now being done in a couple of European cities. Um, it's being done first actually um, for bus routes because it's very easy to do in a bus route because they have a set route and so if you put the electrical um, the electrical things under the under those routes, um, the electric buses literally can be charged, and you know where the route that the buses fo- follow. So it really works very well. They're talking about next doing it on our major highways because again major highways, people know where they're driving, and so if you can recharge your car by driving on a highway, that will also change things drastically. We'll have to see.
1: We'll have uh, to see. Look,
2: <laughs> the economics ultimately rule everything, as we know. Mm-hmm. And um, if the economics end up being cheaper for all of these, you know, all these alternative methods of, of transport, then they will gain. If they don't be, they, they won't work. So I think I think we'll see what happens in the next 10 years, but I think we're going to see drastic changes. Uh, because ultimately, remember, you know, you've had twenty or thirty years of of R and D uh, to make these things cheaper, more effective, and everything else. Um, you have to give Elon Musk and Tesla a lot of credit for what what they've done, pushing things forward. And I think um, we're we're going to see, you know, ultimately major major changes. Look, Norway is now eighty percent of the new cars being sold in Norway are electric, huh. and the um, pollution levels in Oslo have gone way down. Well,
1: we'll see. All right. Life will be life will be interesting. Indeed, it always is. Uh, Mark, we need to take a little break. Can you stick around? Absolutely. All right. We're going to have more here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
0: Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. back to the bob harton show and now here's your host
1: bob harton thanks so much for joining us here on the show it's brought to you in part by golf shore playhouse changing lives through exceptional theater experiences i hope you visit the website and get tickets golfshoreplayhouse.org coming up going to be visiting with jim mctagg former baron's washington bureau chief right now we continue the conversation with mark Schulman, the founder and publisher of a terrific multimedia website is called HistoryCenter.com. Again, Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure, Bob. Thank you, Mark. So uh, let's talk about uh, some things that are going on, for example, in Greece and the election there.
2: All right, so there's an election there. The uh, ruling government party, which um, has won an almost overwhelming victory, not quite enough to, to create a government without uh, forming a coalition. It looks like they're going to go for another round of of elections in order to get to that point where they can rule without a coalition. So um, they're considered a an efficient, good government. Uh, well, strongly aligned with the U.S. and NATO, and so it seems all good news there in terms of Greece. You know, it was only a few years ago, if we remember, when we were worried about the Greece uh, financial crisis taking down Europe, et cetera But Greece Greece has rebounded nicely, um, especially after COVID with tourism back and everything else. So the economy is doing reasonably well, and the people seem reasonably happy. So they re-elect their government.
1: That's uh, good news indeed. And also some good news out of Sudan.
2: Right. There seems to be a, a seven-day ceasefire now that may be taking effect. Um, and um, maybe that this time it'll hold. Um, we'll have to see. You know, again, this is, again, one of the more also also wars are ridiculous but this is one of the most ridiculous wars um uh, that that i can remember because it's really just a power struggle mm-hmm. between uh between these two generals and it looks like it's coming to a close and maybe maybe i don't know you know these people have a hard time giving up potential power
1: well as you pointed out well, in our last conversation last week um I mean, this is not about ideology or the which direction the government should go this is simply two ruthless leaders trying to gain control of the country
2: no absolutely that's that's what's the saddest part of it all i mean yeah. not that civil wars over ideology are good but at least you know you know what they're fighting over right in other words in this case it's just people wanting to maintain control um you know, there's this type of person. I don't know how to describe them. I mean, we've, we've seen them all over the world where they, absolute power is what they want, and sometimes they get it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, sometimes it's political, sometimes it's military, sometimes it's economic, but people love power. What can I tell you?
1: Exactly. Once people get in power and they don't like to give it up, and that's is, again, just what. No, I
2: mean, of- we see that all over the world. We see that everywhere. We see that, you know, in the United States. We look at. I mean, look at the age of the US Senate, right? Yeah. I mean insane. I mean think about the first US Senate and I you know, I don't have the statistics, but my guess is the average age in the first US Senate was somewhere around forty years old. And now I think we're at sixty something is the average age.
1: I yeah. mean <laughs> And Mark Fetterman being <laughs> What what a sad state of affairs indeed. So, uh, well, Mark, let's let's uh, move to uh, to the Arab League. Uh,
2: right. So the Arab League um, met obviously uh, in Saudi Arabia, and there were two interesting things about the Arab League meeting. <clears throat> Number one, of course, the fact that we were talking about a minute ago, Zelensky came and visited. Yeah. Um, now, Zelensky, the, most of the Arab countries have played pretty neutral, with some of them being supportive of the Russians. So he went and gave a pitch why it was so important for them, either to maintain complete neutrality or to help uh, to help Ukraine. I think a rather gutsy move on his part, and it shows that he's willing to go anywhere uh, to gain support for Ukraine. Um, the second part, which is the sadder part, was for the first time, uh, Syrians, Assad was, Syrians Assad was was invited back, and he participated. And of course, you know, he's a war criminal killed a half a million of his own people, yeah. tortured and confused to torture people, attacked hospitals. I mean, really one of the more evil people uh, leading countries these days in the world, and that says a lot when you describe it. But um, they, they took him back. They realized they couldn't overthrow him. He was holding on to power. He wasn't going anywhere. And so now he came back to that meeting, which is a very sad state of affairs, to say the least. Um, you know...
1: So so, comment really on is
2: one of the one of the more evil people on the world stage at the moment,
1: yeah, so comment on the Middle East and uh, generally the makeup and w- how you see things coming together in terms of uh, power and control in the Middle East.
2: It's very dynamic at the moment because we have two major issues, of course. We have, of course, the issue of Iran, and um, it's uh, attempts to expand now Keep in mind the fact that protests resumed in Iran. Uh, yesterday after they um after they hung three of the earlier protesters uh. and so a new round of protests have taken place at the moment if it's going to be sustained i don't do not know um but there's the iranian issue and there's been again a rapprochement between iran and saudi arabia and some of the other sunni states so there's to some extent some sort of realignment going on uh relating to that um uh, the Middle East at the moment um, really is, is in a state of, of flux uh, with potential realignments take, taking place. Um, I, I wish I had a clear crystal ball because I don't. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people wish they did. I mean, you have ongoing, the Israeli-Palestinian problem, you know, keeps on going and is going to keep on going I believe strongly through my lifetime. I hope not through my great-grandchildren's lifetime and ways, along in between that issue is solved, but it's a very difficult issue, to say the least, and that always comes to play depending on what the status of domestic affairs in different Arab countries.
1: So does the Arab League, in coming together as it has, does this begin to more isolate Israel?
2: No, not really. I mean, the Arab League has always been against Israel, so it's not really really an issue. I don't think Israel's any more isolated. Don't forget, it really has strong relations with the Gulf Gulf countries. Uh, very strong trade relations and some military cooperation going on. It's at peace with Egypt. It's at peace with Jordan. Um, These may not be warm pieces, but they are at peace, and there's commerce and trade and tourism going on. So I don't think Israel's any more isolated at the moment because of it. Mm -hmm. Um, The issue, though, is are the other countries going to be a joint front against Iran or not? And that's more problematic at the moment. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the question, look, the... The issue is Iran basically, one has to assume, is very close to our having nuclear weapons at the moment. Uh, everyone's statements aside, um, uh, the biggest mistake was walking away from, from the treaty without a, without a backup plan. There has been no backup plan, and there really is no, there's nothing less than a, a military solution, and even that's quite questionable. Um, and the big mistake, of course, goes all the way back to George Bush. junior invading iraq instead of iran but that's a whole other story
1: yeah Uh, how are the abraham accords holding up
2: they are holding up in terms of you know the trade the trade parts of it are are very uh, very dynamic There's about two billion dollars in trade now taking place Wow. Um, there is this attempt to expand it to saudi arabia i do not believe as long as the current king is alive will it be expandable he's still publicly very concerned about the palestinians Um, We'll have to see. Um, I don't know, um, but but they are holding up at this point. They're holding up reasonably well. Um, time, of course, will tell with these things because things shift way too quickly in the Middle East, as we know.
1: Absolutely. And
2: you know, you know. One of the things the Middle East. We have to keep in mind something else, though. Um, the importance of the Middle East. You know, going back to our earlier discussion, but. As oil begins to recede as the most important source of energy in the world, and clearly it's heading in that direction, we can discuss various aspects of it, but so does the importance of Middle East oil. So yeah. uh, they, un- they understand that, and Saudi Arabia is building, trying as quickly as it can to build an alternative uh, economy so that they're not dependent on oil revenue in 10, 20, 30 years, whenever that period of time comes, when the oil revenue dries up, which it will.
1: Well and you know, oh. that will change the uh, the whole power structure economic power structure of the area completely so is it's an incredible development. I uh, appreciate you pointing that out.
2: Absolutely. It'll <clears> change <throat> an awful lot of things and <clears throat> hard to see you know many of these things we can't anticipate. One thing we've discovered in the last we should have discovered a long time ago and but our ability to to um, to project uh, what's going to happen, I'm using project and not even predict is really limited by, by things that we never anticipated. Yeah. And, you know, the best example, of course, obviously, is the war in Ukraine, but there are many events that have occurred in the last uh, 10 years that were just not expected. And um, therefore, it's very hard to, to predict going forward.
1: Absolutely. And not
2: to mention, changing technology will have massive impacts. and uh, We've seen nothing yet, and we're going to have to see what develops over these, these coming years. But... Those changes are going to come very rapidly.
1: Yeah. The only thing sure is death and taxes, right? <laughs> and turmoil around the and globe.
2: Absolutely. <laughs> yep. Some Mark... places have no taxes, too. So, you know, there are a few places in the world you can run to and not pay taxes.
1: I you know. It. Mark Schulman, again, founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. I hope you check it out, HistoryCentral.com. Mark, thank you so much for joining us here on the show. Have a great week, Bob. You as well. Thank you. All right. Coming up, we're going to be visiting uh, with Larry Reed. He is the president emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. That and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
0: Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
1: Thank uh-huh. you.
0: Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob
1: Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. We're providing you news and commentary rooted in a commitment to individual liberty, personal responsibility, limited government, and the rule of law. Coming up, we're going to visit with uh, Jim McTagg, former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief. Right now we have with us Larry Reed. He is the President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. Larry, thank you so much for joining us here on the show.
3: My pleasure, Bob. Thank you.
1: My pleasure indeed, Larry. Tell us about the Foundation for Economic Education.
3: Okay. We are headquartered in Atlanta, but our work is all over the country and sometimes abroad. We educate and inspire young people of high school and college age with ideas of individual liberty, free enterprise, entrepreneurship, private property, limited government, and personal character, and not only do we have a very robust website, fee, org, with new content every day of the week, but we also offer free online videos and courses and uh, many in-person events on campuses and in high schools around the nation.
1: I just can't encourage our listeners enough to, if you have somebody high school or college age, in your life to introduce them to the Foundation for Economic Education because it is a terrific organization. And i just underscore the importance of uh, personal responsibility when it comes to freedom and liberty. So uh, Larry, uh, you wrote a column, How the UK's 2004 ban on fox hunting led to a catastrophic decline in fox population. This is such an interesting story, the story of unintended consequences. Maybe you can tell us about it.
3: Okay. Well, fox hunting, uh, you know, is part of English lore, and we all have in our minds uh, scenes from movies uh, over the years of uh, fox hunters with their hounds and their horses, And uh, that came to an end in 2004 when the British Parliament voted to ban fox hunting. Uh, And, of course, it was motivated by good intentions. The desire there was to preserve the fox population, and the feeling was that fox hunts are uh, inherently uh, cruel, although they often resulted in a a quick death for the foxes. They weren't tortured. (laughs) But nonetheless, uh, people's sentiments... uh, Uh, regarding animals uh, kind of held sway without any scientific research. And uh, the feeling was that uh, once fox hunting was banned, that the fox population, which was really not threatened back then, but that it would uh, stage uh, a rebound and uh, there would be even more foxes today. But the fact is there's been a catastrophic decline, and that's uh, the term used by veterinarians in uh, Britain, not, not me, Uh, a catastrophic decline because of the consequences of the ban. Uh, Yeah, people like farmers and ranchers who have uh, had to deal with predatory foxes and take the matter into their own hands, uh, they've had to kill foxes, and the result has been far more killed that way uh, than were killed by fox hunting.
1: Isn't that something? So uh, right now, why would, uh, I guess they're, they're... could destroy what is what is it that foxes what were they doing that were upsetting farmers
3: well mostly they were uh, predatory against um, uh, farm animals Mm -hmm. and uh, that was uh, the major reason why uh, many people in britain wanted to control their population but they were content to do it by way of uh, allowing these age-old fox uh, hunts which had the benefit of dispersing the population and also generally speaking Uh, they would take down the weakest of the foxes, which in the long run is the best way to uh, cull a population uh, and preserve it at the same time. But, you know, the the shooting of foxes since the ban has been much more random uh, uh, than the fox hunts uh, produced. So it may seem counterintuitive, but the fox hunt ban has actually been uh, far more harmful To the uh, fox population than the ban or the uh, than fox hunting itself.
1: Yeah, that's so interesting. And again, showing the the law of unintended consequences. So, uh, was it uh, how did the law treat those who killed foxes uh, with guns, for example, without the fox hunt?
3: Well, although there were rare exceptions granted uh, for particularly egregious cases of predatory foxes, um, uh, the People simply stopped uh, uh, doing it when it was uh, uh, visible to anybody. So it was so, sort of went underground, and there weren't very many people who were caught or who could uh, uh, you know, be brought before a, a court of law under it. So uh, it just really drove the uh, act of culling the fox population underground and did it in a much less effective way than uh, the organized fox hunts had done.
1: That's just such an amazing story. Again, Larry Reed, the President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. I hope you check out uh, FEE.org is the website, FEE.org. Larry, I really appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you, Bob. My pleasure, indeed. Uh, by the way, I want to remind you that uh, Lullaby's Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center is serving breakfast and lunch every day, uh, except Sunday, I think, but it's just in fact we're going there today, to uh, meet some friends. But uh, also they're serving dinner now, uh, Wednesday through Saturday evening, four to eight p.m. The menu is great. Serving regular lunch along with a separate dinner menu that includes some comfort food like meatloaf and chop steak, along with some great new seafood items. And Richie, the chef there, is a he's a great chef. I particularly enjoy the grouper, which is just fantastic, and it's inexpensive. You can go there casually without a reservation. So uh, Bee's Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center. Okay, coming up, we're going to be visiting with Jim McTagg, former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief and author of many books. His latest, No Problem, that and more right here on The Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
0: Stay tuned for more of The Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Hartman Broadcasting
1: Network. You have questions about your retirement? Ameriprise Private Wealth Advisor Jason Nardella with Nardella Financial Group, a private wealth advisory practice of Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, can help. With the exclusive Confident Retirement Approach, you'll work together to develop a retirement roadmap to get you where you want to go.
0: To the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton.
1: Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability. It's a terrific organization that helps prepare elected officials to have winning strategies in state legislatures, also in the federal government. I hope you'll uh, visit the website, thefga.org. We have with us Jim McTegg, former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief and author of some terrific murder mysteries. The first is Follow the Leader. Its sequel is Shake the Money Tree, and his latest is No Problem, it's called No Problem. Jim McTegg, thank you so much for joining us here on the show.
4: It's a pleasure, Bob. Thank you for remembering the books, because I turned 74 on May 24th, and uh, I'll probably forget them.
1: I don't know why I do. Remember, of course, I've read uh, all of them, and they are just really terrific. Uh, This Um, uh, set up in the uh, in the city of Washington D.C., where I grew up, basically. So uh, it's just uh, for me, it was just really a special experience uh, to read your murder mysteries. They're just terrific.
4: Which which brings us to our discussion. I live outside the beltway now. I moved to Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, and I want to back into to what I'm going to say. All right. Uh, uh, this weekend, uh, my wife Rachel and I went to a bluegrass festival in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. Wow. A beautiful place. And uh, it's a three-day festival. We went for one day. It was packed. Uh, there were rows and rows of campers. So people had come from far and wide to enjoy beautiful weather, listen to bluegrass music. And I, I, the food was served by truck vendors, <clears throat> and I interviewed all the truck vendors I simply I said How do you think the economy is? Because if you ask a businessman are you making money? He shuts up right away. <laughs> yeah. he, he thinks you're from the IRS <laughs> ha, ha, How do you think the economy is doing? They all said really good and the reason they gave me was that we're still in the mist of a COVID coming out party, you know, we forget, but if you were a small businessman, even with federal aid, uh, it was just miserable time during the COVID uh, lockdown. And so people, people are gathering freely now without fear and uh, they're spending on entertainment, you know, group activities. Uh, so what I'm backing into is the, uh, the Tet crisis I think the Republicans are nuts, uh, regardless of the merits of their argument. You mm-hmm. know, certainly the the fiscal side of uh, the economy, the government side, is out of whack. Uh, certainly we need some spending discipline. You know, we need some real strategy. Uh, but if the Repub- you know, the people that live outside the Beltway are not policy wonks, they're not getting into the weeds uh-huh. uh, they, they don't read the uh, editorial page of the wall street journal and so if there's a government shutdown or a delay of services the republicans are going to get blamed as they did when they shut down the government in 1996 you know pretty much putting icing on the cake for bill clinton to win a second term because people people who wanted to go on vacation to national parks Suddenly found the doors closed to give one example, and the so this will give the Republican party a black eye and worst of all, if we have a recession it the Democrats can blame the republicans so so the Republicans are offering an exit or an excuse for the president for his recession so mm. i I, so, I think they should settle this as quickly as possible, declare victory, and maybe um, champion uh, Congressman Garrett Graves of Louisiana, who' was doing the negotiating. he's i think mean, he's fifty years old, fifty one he could be a new fresh face for the Republican party, you know and end it otherwise, uh, again, regardless of the merits, uh, the the Republicans, while we score points among their um, their loyal uh, few and, uh, and they're not going win the, they're not going to win the independence
1: see that's so interesting to me first of all the response from the vendors that's saying the economy is good I mean we're right here in the midst of inflation that continues to be out of control uh, number one number two uh, lots of businesses had to close during the recession or during the uh, uh, the lockdowns and uh, the closing of the economy but uh, to me, it seems to me, since the uh, Republicans have passed legislation, uh, of course the Senate has, but the, the House of Representatives has, it seems to me that that, that I think people are aware that, uh, at least to me, it seems like the Democrats have painted themselves in a corner.
4: Well, uh, this is a typical uh, roadrunner, wily coyote situation. And I think the uh, Democrats haven't painted themselves in the corner. I think they are the roadrunner, and they're luring uh, the coyote Republicans into a trap, just like Bill Clinton did. Um, People don't understand this whole debt ceiling argument, and there have been some good articles about it. And if you go online, there are a lot of uh, neutral sources who have histories of, of the debt ceiling. And they're very informative. But i got to tell you, outside, again, I repeat,
1: yeah. there are
4: a few policy wonks outside the Beltway. People are just not focusing on that. And if government services suddenly are curtailed, uh, they're going to get uh, blindsided and they're going to be angry. They're going to blame the Republicans.
1: Well, so today is a, uh, kind of a pivotal day. <laughs> Apparently the, the uh, administration and the uh, Demo- or the Republicans from the House are meeting, and hopefully they'll get some progress and get this thing resolved. It, the one thing is for sure, if they can get it resolved, that's no matter what the resolution is, if they are able to shake hands and, and move on, it's going to be a good thing. If they can't, it's going to be devastating to the economy.
4: It will be. And right, right now we have a rolling recession. So, uh, you know, if you're in high tech... Or, or if you're in uh, certain retail sectors, you're getting clobbered and you feel the pain. But other sectors are doing well. So if you look at hotels, uh, the room the rental rates uh, are fantastic. If you look at the most, you know, restaurants are doing well. So people are still spending. Oh, and and gasoline prices. I don't know what they're like in Florida, but in Pennsylvania, they've moderated, which mm-hmm. is you know, as we know, uh, prices at the pump, when they go down, it's like getting a tax cut. So people, I don't hear as much griping about as infl- inflation as I did. Now, <clears throat> I think it's a problem. I've said before, we have a guns and butter economy, like much like the one that Lyndon Johnson ushered in during Vietnam. You know, you can't spend heavily on domestic uh, projects, and fund military during war and we essentially are at at war so some my position which would be very unpopular among your listeners is let's cut domestic spending uh but we have to raise taxes here to, to at least uh in the short run to finance the war and that will keep inflation down uh i hate higher taxes you know, yeah. I have to pay taxes quarterly, yeah. and I can't tell you how painful it is to write those checks to the IRS.
1: Well, but I must say you- I'm, a, I'm, I'm a laugher devotee. I mean, it seems to me that there is a perfect point of the amount of taxes you charge, and actually the revenue goes down if you increase the taxes uh, uh, in, beyond that perfect point. So I'm not sure that ta- that's actually do anything to increase the revenue.
4: But, I, you know, I agree with the Republicans. They should claw back some of the uh, COVID money
1: yeah. and put
4: it to use elsewhere. I mean, the Republicans have some very good arguments. But but again, repeat, there are a few policy wants outside the beltway, and people people are just not uh, focusing on that.
1: Well, you make and a they- good point. In fact, uh, I, I read recently that uh, actually the number one issue is not – uh, inflation but the cost of health care so it's kind of interesting how, how the needle how the needle moves uh, during the course of uh, from week to week uh, Jim McTighe, again a former Barron's Washington Review Chief I hope you'll take a look at his books they're fun to read and they're great murder mysteries the first is Follow the Leader its sequel Shake the Money Tree and its sequel uh, no problem Jim really appreciate your commentary here on the show thank you so much for joining us Thank you, Bob. My pleasure, indeed. Well, that's a wrap here on today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. We're going to have Kathleen Pasadomo, our state senator and state senate president, joining us tomorrow, along with Seton Motley. He's the founder and president of Less Government. Always appreciate your comments on the show. You can send me an email at bobharden at hotmail.com. Also, if you enjoy the show, tell your friends. It's one of the ways we build uh, fellowship for our uh, advertisers, and uh, we can't do the show without them. I hope you make it a great day on the Paradise Coast or wherever you are. Namaste.
0: Thanks so much for listening to The Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.